Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Michael A. Robinson, the author of Dangerous Instrument, Political Politicalization and the U.S. Military Relations. I wonder if you could start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Sure. I, I think this is a, a great place to start, to be sure. Um, uh, I'm an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University and also an active duty Army strategist. So before even getting into the rest, I should mention that what you'll hear today about the book and the research therein are the opinions of the author uh, and do not represent the positions of the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any part of the U.S. government. Uh, this project got its start as my doctoral dissertation research, uh, actually, while at Stanford, uh, examining attitudes on civil-military relations, uh, initially looking as a way uh, of, of looking at attitudes uh, that the public formed in response to military figures engaging on complicated issues like foreign policy or armed intervention. But the more that I examined the findings of that research, the more questions it raised. One of the conclusions that I kept coming to was that the influence of the military voice seemed to be tied almost directly to how much those respondents said they trusted the military, but that that trust was itself highly dependent on different levels and directions of partisanship, which is what led to the research that follows and the intersection of partisan polarization on civil military attitudes and ultimately the book. Tell the audience about the title of your book. Well, I suppose before getting into all of the political science, a little bit of, of history seems appropriate. Um, in the waning years of the American Revolution, after the Battle of Yorktown, then still head of the army, George Washington was faced with an increasing amount of discontent from soldiers who had been promised pension wages over their lifetimes, but had failed to see Congress make good on them. And so a group of senior officers, including Alexander Hamilton, had made somewhat threatening overtures to Congress about the ramifications of failing to pay the army. And so Washington was forced to step in directly, successfully appealing to the army to stand down and brokering a compromise agreement with Congress for back pay. Soon after, Washington wrote to Hamilton of his distress over the episode, reminding him that the army is, quote, a dangerous instrument to to play with. The episode was illustrative of a military leader, in this case, Washington, before he would ever assume the civilian offices he would have later in life, understanding the inherent necessity of civilian control of the armed forces and the damaging influence of faction in that regard. So I found it a duly appropriate name for the book. Great. Now, you started the book with a question from your research. How do you politicize military? Tell us about that question. Well, partisan polarization may be one of the more defining challenges of our time, and and not just for national security reasons, but for the preservation of a strong democracy. And there really cannot be any full accounting of the state of civil-military relations without consideration of this key aspect of the environment. So the question seemed like a good place to begin, given the scope of the book, which doesn't just look at the different empirical trends and patterns that have created the conditions for politicization, 
But it couches those findings in the context of what do we even mean by the term politicization, the different forms it can take, and the implications for civil-military relations. Your focus was on civil-military relationships. What did you find in your research? Well, there's considerable research already on the nature of the so-called civil-military divide, and much of which has to do with the perception that the military has become a sort of separate sphere in society since the beginning of the all-volunteer force, that is, since the end of of draft-based conscription. Uh, In my book, I focus on some of the more normative divides, in particular, how much the military may want to stay out of partisan politics and how much, regrettably, an increasingly partisan public may actually wish for the opposite. Is the relationship between the military and the American public very complicated? Uh, Like many relationships in American politics, it has lots of complexity. Uh, This is because both the public and the military have seen remarkable change in the five decades uh, since the the all-volunteer force started in in 1973. Uh, The military has enjoyed an increasing amount of warmth from the public, uh, who have themselves grown increasingly cold to one another based on partisan lines. Uh, What's more, foreign policy is often an area where Americans are actually unlikely to imbue a great amount of cognitive energy or even intent at the ballot box. And so the nuance and complexity of armed military intervention abroad is one that is channeled through information environments that are themselves complicated. And so one of the main conclusions of the book is that unless one actually has primary source exposure to the military, members of the public are often reliant on third party voices to draw conclusions about the military itself. So this can make it even more complicated to discern fact from fiction when rendering judgments about whether there is trust or confidence in the military as an institution. Did you find that citizens have more confidence in the military than in other institutions? This is a subject of another great body of of research in civil military relations scholarship. And for a deeper exploration on specifically that question, I would offer to your listeners another great book called Thanks for Your Service. Uh, by eminent civil military scholar Peter Fever. But one trend that is absolutely front and center in my own book is one that I mentioned earlier, and that's the public's impressions of the military have changed dramatically from a low point following the Vietnam War to the present. A a pretty steady increase over the 1980s and 1990s, uh, a surge after 9-11, and then a strangely durable stabilization high in the public's esteem while the public's trust in representative institutions like Congress or the presidency has fallen and remained low. To be sure, over the same period, we've seen dramatic reforms in the military's organizational practices and the ability to achieve results on the battlefield. But existing research on the subject of why the public's trust increased has often hit a wall. Uh, For instance, battlefield success as an explanation in in small-scale interventions like Panama or Grenada or even larger victories like in Operation Desert Storm might help explain this increase to a point but can't explain why confidence would remain high over nearly two decades of indecisive conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what I found is that there is a strong partisan undercurrent to express trust in the military, with uh, traditionally political conservatives expressing more confidence in the institution. And so this trend, together with sharpening polarization across other parts of society, has set the conditions for politicization that we see today. Does the military have a nonpartisan ethic? What did you find concerning that research? Well, the, the book takes a broader view of the term politicization as a concept from the beginning. 
uh, incorporates not just the influence of tangible political activity, but also the mere perception. Politicization is a term that many have probably heard in political discourse with perhaps the most intuitive definition being any actions that infuse a sort of partisan valence into an institution, an agent, or an issue where it's believed not to belong. One of the many problems that comes with sweeping partisan polarization is that it brooks very few unchallenged fronts. And if partisan disputes can't be resolved in traditionally partisan environments like Congress, they can spill over into secondary areas that were often not designed to accommodate them, uh, resulting in shrinking public confidence and perceived credibility. As scholars like Corey Shockey and Heidi Urban have noted, the experience of the Supreme Court might be educational here. Once the court was perceived by the public as a secondary or tertiary partisan battlefield, confidence in the institution as nonpartisan began to shrink. My book examines politicization as not only instances in which an institution acts or is forced to act in a way that is amenable to one party over another, uh, but also cases in which that is merely the perception. And so I classify four types of politicizing activity with respect to the military, envisioning that the public sort of calibrates its understanding of the military's location based on its position relative to partisan political guideposts in the background, in this case, the parties. The first type is active politicization in which the military actors of their own accord engage in activity that intentionally or otherwise draws it closer to one party over another. I take care to include retired military officers in this category as well. As research has shown, the public doesn't clearly discern them from active duty counterparts. Endorsements of political campaigns, open advocacy, or opposition to stated policy, uh, alliance building in Congress, these can all be examples of active politicization. The second type is passive politicization, and in this case, the military is still moving along some perceived ideological spectrum as a result of its activity, but this activity is directed from outside the military. So for example, if civilian politicians or political leaders use the military or military symbolism for partisan political gain, this would be an example of passive politicization. Using the visual trappings of military service for partisan ends, or even speeches to military service members that appeal to them as a partisan constituency. The last two categories focus more on the perception-driven forms of politicization, because in these cases, the military may not be moving at all. Uh, relative politicization occurs when it is not the military that's moving, but the partisan guideposts in the background. So if party position-taking becomes extreme uh, relative to traditional positions, and particularly if this ex extremity is asymmetric, it can expose a small amount of daylight between the military and the shifting sensibilities of that party. And as a result, the public can draw the opposite conclusion, which is that it is the military that is subversively failing to keep pace with a favored partisan establishment. And then finally, aspect politicization occurs when it is, in fact, the viewing public that is the one that is shifting. And as a result of reliance on third-party information streams, they may draw a skewed understanding of the military itself, seeing it as drifting in the opposite direction. And so collectively, these categories of politicizing activity capture not just instances in which the military's behavior can politicize the institution, uh, but how the behavior of others in this sort of three-body problem can do so as well. Now, what did you find concerning nonpartisan ethic? It's fair to say that in an ideal state, the nonpartisan ethic is certainly what the military strives for. 
Uh, unfortunately, this is often conflated with an apolitical ethic, which uh, scholars like Risa Brooks have thoroughly demonstrated is a misnomer. Uh, as the historians listening to your to your podcast might be aware, famed military strategist Carl von Clausewitz famously remarked that war is a continuation of politics by other means. As such, military officers are inherently political. There is nothing more political in this sense than, than war fighting. But in a free society, we should want the military to be nonpartisan, that they're accountable to civilian leaders, regardless of that leader's partisan alignment. And so the forms of politicization that I outlined previously are normatively dangerous because they erode precisely that and feed the impression that the military is instead the result of some partisan capture. And so while I'm sure senior leadership of the military constantly aim for a clear nonpartisan ethic, this is often complicated by wading into or being drawn into partisan political debates. Now, you talk about a military elite. What role do they play? Uh, what did you find concerning that research? Well, early in the book, uh, I examine how much, uh, I, really, I look at how much military actors, to include retired officials, can influence public opinion, uh, building on a, on a body of research in American politics that looks at how elite queuing uh, can shape attitudes on, on complex issues like foreign policy, how uh, a signal received from a trusted elite can can shape one's opinions about something that might be too complex to form an expert opinion on. And through a host of survey experiments, uh, I found that military actors can influence these kinds of calculations, uh, in some cases, even when uh, the military signals are in an opposite direction to the president's own preferences. But I also find that once the partisan alignment of that military messenger becomes known, the public's susceptibility to their message changes greatly. Uh, for example, in one of the later experiments in the book, I find that the public drastically reduces its perceived credibility of retired military officers if they find out that that person is amenable to the other side of the political aisle. And this conditionality hits at really the heart of the findings of the book, which is that public confidence for the military and support for traditional civil military norms is to a certain extent built on an unstable foundation of partisanship uh, rather than an objective evaluation of the military's performance. Now, let's stop for a moment, and I want you to tell us about your research design. What was that uh, about? And tell us one of the most interesting findings from the book. The book utilizes a, a host of different techniques to explore the, the different modes of politicizing activity. Uh, including three original survey exper experiments on nationally representative samples of Americans, uh, observational data analysis, and even unsupervised machine learning techniques on media reporting about the military, uh, and also social media follower network analysis for prominent military figures. And they collectively paint a very interesting, if often distressing, picture uh, of the normative environment in which leaders in the civil-military relationship exist. Uh, though there are many findings of importance, I think one of particular interest is the extent to which the public relies on outside sources for information about the military, uh, whether it's commentary from retired officers or reporting from uh, favorable or co-partisan media elites. The, the limited direct exposure the public has to the military leaves them very dependent on often skewed information environments for data. And the result can be a tenuous relationship, just as much built on perception as it is on reality. Now, you talk about the military elites. One example was the Iraq War. What did that incident tell us about the civil 
military leadership. So in addition to the quantitative research that, that I described, I also utilize some more illustrative case study examples uh, to show some forms of politicizing activity and practice. And the Iraq war was certainly one of those. Uh, for example, the 2006 so-called revolt of the generals involved recently retired commanders from the Iraq war openly criticizing the management of the war and the Pentagon's leadership under then Secretary Rumsfeld. While many agree that the intent of this kind of commentary wasn't necessarily to tack closer to the more war skeptical at that time Democratic Party over the Republican Party, it created that impression in some circles and also created a lot of pressure on Republican leaders going into a tough midterm election. And so the episode is illustrative of active politicization that even if the intent had been otherwise, uh, that this effect was achieved. The Iraq war period is also one of many cases that I use to analyze precisely this dependency and media exposure that I mentioned earlier, looking at how the war was reported over time by different outlets in print, radio, cable news, and the period revealed wide differences in not just the volume of reporting, uh, particularly during the deadliest year of the war in 2007, but also the framing that different outlets adopted when reporting about the conduct of the Iraq war. What did you find about the media reporting and the partisan credibility gap? You talked about that in the research. So looking at different periods of reporting about military activities over time, one pattern that kept emerging was that media outlets traditionally trafficked by political conservatives were over that time more protective of the military in reporting than centrist or left of center outlets. Uh, times of difficult military stalemate or high casualties in the Iraq and Afghanistan war, for example, were reported on with less frequency there. Uh, and when they were discussed, the subject usually pivoted to issues like congressional infighting over the budget, uh, in, in some cases, uh, commentary on how left-wing media was re reporting on the war improperly, uh, rather than on materiel uh, or personnel losses or issues of strategic quagmire. And this sort of extended to periods of organizational scandal, where I found that conservative outlets were also less likely to report on events like uh, Abu Ghraib, uh, the Walter Reed Medical Center, or sexual assault scandals. And the effect of these kinds of uh, different uh, partisan media environments was detectable in survey experiments that I ran later in the book uh, used to measure how knowledge of these kinds of activities changed one's impressions of the military's credibility. So using an experimental design, while, while Democrats and independents expressed lower levels of confidence in the military upon hearing of such events uh, like battlefield failure or organizational scandal, I found that Republicans were generally unmoved and argue that this is the direct result of the respective information environments that each partisan tribe sort of relies on for information. So it would make sense, logically, if conservative media was more protective of the military, its audience would express similar sensibilities. This is actually proven particularly true now in the inverse. Uh, there's been sort of a hard turn in conservative media circles in reporting of the military that is more adversarial, and this is tracked directly with a large decrease in expressed confidence for the armed forces among their primary viewership which reveals how closely tied these two trends are. You talk about officers and their socialization of politicization. Can you tell us what did you find there? Well, I absolutely think that this is a concept to which, uh, and, and not just officers, but, but service members generally should be socialized. I think that uh, the intent of professional military education should be, among other things, 
uh, to educate service members about the importance of the nonpartisan norm, and not just as rote memorization, but as deeper internalization. The, the natural extension of this is obviously to discuss politicization and the challenge it can pose to that norm and offer service members a way to responsibly navigate the civil-military relationship while preserving a capable and nonpartisan force. What did you learn about political parties and the appointment of retired military officers? That was a part of your research. Tell us about that. Well, the retired military community is one that I think bears special consideration and, and much more study as a block. Uh, while administrations of both parties have have relied on ex-military or retired military figures in uh, traditionally civilian positions of responsibility in government, uh, that is a pattern that we have seen expand in recent years. And what's more, the presence of retired military officers as endorsers for major political campaigns has expanded as well, despite a lot of research that shows that these endorsements actually do little to affect voter intention. So one of the key conclusions the book comes to is that retired officers with more avowedly partisan bona fides are likely to lose a substantial amount of credibility among Americans on the other side of the political aisle, but they can also gain a very ideologically coherent, if smaller, audience on their own side. Uh, looking at the social media follower networks of prominent retired military officers, I found that retired officers who regularly appeared on partisan media or who were high profile members of uh, partisan campaigns could actually cultivate follower networks that were even more partisan than elected officials. Retirees that are keenly aware of this landscape can use it to their advantage if they're willing to trade broader credibility for narrower gain uh, or even personal aspirations for a political office. Now, this isn't to suggest that retired military, comment, uh, retired military commentary uh, can't be well-intentioned. Uh, for example, there were retired military officers with no history of political speech, either before or after, who wrote openly about the dangers of, for instance, using military forces in American streets following the 2020 protests after the murder of George Floyd, uh, and again following the insurrection uh, at the Capitol in 2021. Uh, unfortunately, however well-intentioned these messages can be, they're likely to be channeled through the exact same partisan media environments we've discussed earlier, which heavily dilutes their ability to reach a broad audience. Now, you list some solutions. Can you tell us about what was listed in the book? Well, I think there are several ways to approach the challenge of politicization, both for military and civilians. And in this case, I'm certainly contributing to a wide field of, of other researchers who have made uh, similar recommendations. But first, as I, as I mentioned earlier, military leaders can take steps to improve professional education on the nonpartisan norm uh, and enforce the norm in the active force by socializing its importance to junior leaders. Uh, second, civilian leaders can take uh, greater steps in trying to field particularly tricky political issues themselves rather than have uniformed service members uh, necessarily defend policy, which can often result in a further perception of politicization. Additionally, civilian politicians should try to limit the use of military iconography in partisan political contexts, which really can only serve to blur the line between partisan and military realms. And finally, uh, political leaders of all stripes should ensure that partisan rhetoric never rises to the level of sanctioning or approving political violence. Uh, the flashpoints of 2020 and 2021 that brought the military into such a close partisan political spotlight 
are illustrative examples of how this effect uh, can negatively impact the civil-military relationship. What is the overall myth that you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Well, I would absolutely encourage uh, readers of the book to keep reading on the subject. Uh, It is complicated to be sure, but one of incredible importance. Uh, My book is built uh, on the shoulders of giants, and the other researchers that I've mentioned today and that are in the bibliography of the book have written extensively about different aspects of this challenge. I think the subject is not one that should be confined to niche academic outlets, but rather one that should be regularly discussed in our political discourse. Americans should want a competent, nonpartisan military that's supportive of a healthy democracy. And learning about this subject can be an important way to develop that sensibility among the public. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Well, I'm, I'm happy to say I've had the, the pleasure very recently of, of publishing some new research on the state of civil military norms with uh, outstanding scholars, uh, Risa Brooks and Heidi Urban, that examines this question sort of from the other side of the dash in, in civil military relations through uh, survey work on cadets in military service academies. Uh, the findings are very interesting, and I hope will uh, continue a concerted level of empirical research uh, in the field. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with the author of Dangerous Instrument, Political Polarization, and the U.S. Civil-Military Relations, Michael Michael A. Robinson. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.